You're listening to The Good GP, the podcast for busy GPs. Hello and welcome to The Good GP. I'm Sean Stevens, and today I'm interviewing Dr Penny Wood and Dr Sally Murray in the second part of our Transgender Medicine podcasts. So without any further ado, let's leap straight into it. Looking first at male to female transition, Penny, can you please talk us through how you would approach an adult requesting gender-affirming therapy to transition to a female? Before we kind of start, we really need to make sure that the patient is capable to consent prior to offering medical care. And this is generally pretty straightforward as patients tend to be pretty well researched. But occasionally there can be some major psychological or intellectual issues which can be of concern. Um, this doesn't happen very often, as I mentioned in, the, in our last podcast, but, you know, it can happen. Secondly, not all patients want or need to fully transition to female. There's increasing numbers of people wanting to be a non-binary gender. Um, so the advice that offer with medications is rather than socially transitioning with, you know, definitely an endpoint in mind, I offer feminising hormone therapy rather than assuming a binary transition and, you know, whilst people's ideas of where they want to end up might be somewhere at the beginning of the process, it, it, it can sometimes change during the process, but that's far from universal. As part of this consent process, so make sure that they are ready, you know, what social su- supports have they got around them? Are they dependent on others who will react badly? You know, like sometimes you get someone who's got, um, uh, who's a young person who's got quite difficult parents who's going to kind of kick them out and they'll be homeless you know um are they ready to take on the difficulties of transitioning you know are there going to be any issues with ongoing employment these are all things you want to have a good think through but ultimately it's the patient's decision on whether they'll proceed and i we need to respect that really Um, i might give advice around getting themselves into a better position before proceeding but yeah like again it's the, the patient's decision about what they want to do with their their process and their path Of course, most of my new patients these days have been referred in from other doctors, so they're generally pretty ready to go by the time they come and see me. Great. Thanks, Penny. Sally, do you have anything that you'd like to add to that? No, I think that's a a really good summary. Like It is sort of really getting your ducks in a row. That's how I think about it. So you want a successful transition and that's going to be successful when you know, you've got the social and uh, medical things all sorted up front, basically. So, you know, from my point of view, in part of that workup, I mean, Penny's spoken well to the social aspects of things, and we absolutely do the same. But, um, But, you know, and then just medically, you know, it's thinking about for someone that you're starting feminizing hormones in, I mean, you really don't think about it any differently than, you know, perhaps starting the oral contraceptive pill. So is, is there a, you know, strong history of migraine with aura? Is there, you know, strong family history of breast cancer or something like that? Like it's really just thinking through the usual contraindications to estrogen therapy and, you know, applying them in this setting as such. And, you know, to be honest, there's not a lot of times where you I'm trying to think of one I don't think I've had a time yet where you know we haven't been able to offer estrogen certainly um, you know we'll probably talk a bit in, in a minute about formulations but you know my preference is to use patch therapy because there's um, basically no increased risk thromboembolic risk and 
you know, I'm just not clear to me why you wouldn't um, use it because of that. And I also think you get a nice sort of even distribution of hormones through 24 hours, which are um, without, you know, changes in gut absorption and stuff like that. So, you know, it's just really kind of getting all that social stuff up front and then thinking about your hormones. And, you know, you've got oral options, which are possible. But again, I, you know, I do normally choose a patch option um start slow you transition over a lifetime we all you know so it's, i'd try and discourage the big rush because otherwise it can be a bit like pregnancy in terms of side effects you can get some nausea and um headaches and things so i like to start with a low annoying patch that does nothing for at least a month you know 25 micrograms so patch and then move on to sort of 50 after that i mean everyone does it slightly different in the end there really aren't any rules but you know, that tends to be my approach, just let people sort of feel their way into the hormones and see how it feels for them. You know, it's as Penny said, it's a very individual process and I like people to have time to adjust to those new feelings. Yeah, it seems that it does feel different. And Sally, when do you think it's necessary for a GP to get someone like yourself involved? Rarely. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well like again I think it's you know the, for, for one you've got uh, you know if you catch up with the last podcast we did then we had some great resources there for asking questions as a startup so the Ozpath listserv um, which we'll, we'll post here and the um, GPDU Facebook group uh, are great for sort of asking those kind of questions when you're starting out so you know should I be concerned should I refer this patient and then, you know, really, again, it's it's no different than who you would refer in your usual work. So if you've got someone with worsening migraines and you're trying to use estrogen patches on them, you know, for HRT, say, or you've got, you know, as I say, someone with strong family history of breast cancer and you're just worried about, you know, that estrogen receptor status, et cetera, you know, or clotting disorders, you know, someone with a marked history of clotting disorders, you know, all the reasons why you'd kind of have your spidey senses out for starting estrogen in any other patient. Mm. Okay, thank you. Penny, can you tell us about the medications you use for feminising hormone treatment? Yeah, so I'll just build on what Sally's been talking about there. But generally for, for people on feminising hormone treatment, we have two goals. The first is to get their testosterone down into the, the female range. And the second is to get their estrogen levels up into the female range. So with testosterone suppression, the mainstay really in Australia would be suprotorone. Um, that's that's available you know you can use quite low doses so most of my patients start on a quarter of a tablet a day and often go down from there and it's very very effective suprotorone if anything you know it suppresses testosterone a bit too much um, so spironolactone is quite uh, popular in other places in the world but it tends to be more of a second line option in Australia because we do have suprotorone although you know for some people they might prefer spironolactone because it is a bit more gentle it doesn't um suppress their testosterone nearly as much which can help with things like keeping their libido intact uh, which can be quite important for some people of course after surgery if someone has some um, surgery for for genital transition they won't need any um, testosterone suppression because they no longer have gonads the other aspect of hormone treatment is estrogen so estrogen is the same thing it's estradiol but we either give it orally or parenterally as 
Sally suggested the, the parenteral route is preferred because it's got lower listed blood clots. But sometimes younger patients might prefer oral estrogen because it is convenient. You know, they don't get the rashes they can get from patches. There's less stuff to put on their skin. The other thing I do frequently enough is hormone implants, which um, are quite a good long-term solution because they give you a good dose of estrogen, nice and stable, and it lasts for a long time. Yeah. Mm. Okay, thank you. Now, Penny, what are the ongoing monitoring and health promotion activities that are specific to trans women? Uh, well, this is mostly the same as health promotion and screening use, use for everybody, really. I mean, you know, we try and make sure that people don't smoke, that keep their weight under control, get regular exercise, you know, manage other cardiovascular risk issues like hypertension and diabetes. I guess out of those things, the smoking cessation is especially prominent in in trans women because you know smoking increases your risk of thromboembolism as does estrogen particularly oral estrogen so it also does reduce the effectiveness of hormone treatment it really slows things down which most trans women are really not keen on having other than that you know it's it's fairly standard stuff you know breast screening for 50 years years old might be considered there's not a lot of evidence around whether this is is worth doing or not, but certainly warrants a conversation with women around that age group. You might around 50 consider going through a menopause, if you like, um, where you withdraw hormone treatment, but a lot of people prefer to carry on with their hormone treatment longer term. I guess the other one we consider would be prostate cancer, but this is very unlikely with long-term hormone treatment because it really does suppress the, um, the, the sort of prostate proliferation uh, it's hard to know what to do for screening in trans women for for um, prostate cancer because the PSA is not particularly useful and obviously a bit more research is needed. I guess the other one we, we talk about sometimes is sexually transmitted infections, but this really varies a lot between person to person. Um, if someone is at high risk, you might consider regular screening or you know those at risk of HIV. Um, particularly using condomless anal intercourse with multiple partners, you might consider pre-exposure prophylaxis. But, you know, those don't come up all that often because a lot of trans women are, are in stable relationships or are not that interested. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, really, that's, like you say, that's very much general practice bread and butter screen. Oh, yeah, very much so, yeah. yeah. The only other thing I'll add in there is, yes, I think you said, but the cardiovascular monitoring and, and weight gain can be an issue, so... Mm. Um, just keeping an eye on that for patients. I mean, they often want the rounder hips, etc. but there's a limit to how round those hips need to be. So. Yeah, true. <laughs> uh, very good. So, Penny, we've talked about readiness to commence treatment in feminising hormones. Are there any differences in those requesting masculinising therapy? And what about hormone therapy? Like I said before, the assessment of readiness is, is pretty much the same. You know, it is quite a big life transition. Testosterone therapy is really the only thing needed for people wanting to um, androgenize their appearance. It is generally for most people lifelong, so that needs to be discussed. And again, like much like estrogen, we can use testosterone topically or we can use injections. So the mainstay of treatment for most people on testosterone is is the three monthly injections with Reandron because it's very convenient. Um, this does need medical care, of course. You need to see a doctor to get the injection done or a nurse. They can't be self-administered. So Sally, you mentioned earlier trans men need subspecialist input. Can you please tell me what your role is here? 
Yeah, well, it's one of those annoying ones, really. Like my role is only because PBS requires me to have one. Um, so the PBS requires um, a urologist, an endocrinologist or a sexual health physician to approve testosterone within the first 12 months of use to be able to sort of get that cheap um, authority script. So, you know, people can buy tea with private scripts and that's fine, but it's expensive and you know, not less than ideal. So at the moment we have a role just because, you know, there's this annoying little requirement to get specialist approval. But otherwise, from a practical point of view, our role really just is, again, for the, you know, complicated patients perhaps, of which there's there's really not many for people on masculinising therapy. Polycythemia can be a problem, so you've got to watch out for that. And, you know, sometimes, well, rarely, but sometimes that might need managing but otherwise, you know, it really does sit um, very nicely in primary care. Um, there was a, just a couple of things, you know, with the monitoring that um, Penny mentioned. You know, I feel quite strongly that it's important to keep people's T ranges in sort of cis male range. So um, it depends a little bit on your lab for what those are, but sort of low normal range. And so you need to do that sort of blood test one week before your next injection and just make sure you're hitting the mark and you need to be doing a full blood count to make sure that you're not getting polycythemic. And so with both trans women and my trans men, I do kind of it's starting up, you know, maybe sort of three monthly bloods moving to perhaps twice a year. But I think that also is good because people are engaged with the healthcare system. They're getting their blood pressure checked. Someone's keeping an eye on their weight, et cetera. But in terms of from a medical point of view, we don't have much role. It's just this requirement for authorisation. And Penny, do you have anything else to add that you would monitor with your trans men? Um, well, really, just to build on what Sally said there, you know, testosterone therapy does need to be monitored over the long term. Some people might have the view that they want more testosterone, but overall, this is not, not the best outcome as it turns into estrogen through esterification. And when you explain that to trans men, they're generally not too keen on doing that. Um, polycythemia is another thing we need to monitor you know, especially if they're over-replaced because this does increase risks of, of various vascular complications. So I try and check their full blood count, um, well, initially every three months, but then after that, yeah, no, every six to 12 months to make sure their hematocrit doesn't start creeping up. And we can generally manage this by spacing the injections or doing blood donation or phlebotomy to get their full blood count down. Yeah. Awesome. And the only other thing I'd comment that I don't think we've touched on before is for anyone um, having sex that can result in a pregnancy, then contraception is really important. So we know that T's are teratogen, so um, that needs to be discussed. You know, condoms always remain an option, but they're fairly unpopular. Mm. Um, so any of the progesterone-based contraceptives are really good for trans guys. And, you know, although we say that feminising therapy damages fertility in trans women, you know, it's still not a reliable contraceptive from that point of view. So, you know, if you're not planning a pregnancy, that certainly needs to be kept in mind, as, as does that sort of fertility discussion up front for people starting feminising hormones that, you know, they really do need to understand that it could have an adverse and permanent impact on their fertility. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly something I do to talk to my patients about Sally you know I talk to them about how particularly estrogen therapy does does lower your sperm count and it takes a very long time for that to you know get anywhere back to normal I mean it can't be considered a contraceptive but uh, it can have quite powerful results and you know oftentimes we get patients coming in when they're 
you know, maybe in their early 20s and their thoughts about future children are not not particularly uh, like they want to do that in the future. Um, yeah, for having children then. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but, you know, like this has been a big regret in my patients that they haven't frozen sperm before they started or, you know, maybe they changed their mind later. And I sort of sell the, uh, the the sperm freezing to them as a as a safety measure, a security for the future, just in case they change their mind, rather than, you know, with the intention that they'll go on to parent a child, so to speak. On that, it's really important when you're chatting with your patients about this, just to not make assumptions about what people want. So um, there are some trans men that will be quite happy to stop their testosterone and want to actually conceive in the future and and you know carry a pregnancy. You know, for other guys, that's the thought is just, you know, horrible. Um, but it's just having those conversations, making no assumptions and just sort of asking people what they want and how they feel about stuff and then finding a way through, basically. You know, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, starting a family is, is something that uh, trans people can consider. You know, it's, it's quite possible for, as you mentioned, trans guys to carry a pregnancy and it's also quite possible for trans women to breastfeed a newborn baby if it's prepared well enough ahead of time. So, you know, that's something we can certainly help with. Mm. And that's they're the sort of questions you post on your GBTU Facebook forum. (laughs) (laughs) How do I initiate breastfeeding? How do I initiate breast milk, you know, trans women? So we're not expected to know that stuff and and good luck trying to find a textbook that discusses it. (laughs) Right, okay. Well, that's good to know. I I was suddenly thinking there were these huge gaps in my knowledge. (laughs) Well, look, thank you very much, both of you. Is there anything else that you wanted to add before we close off? I mean, guess really in summary, you know, medical care of trans individuals is is actually pretty straightforward and it's not anything that's more difficult than what's directly done in general practice. And there's support available if, if you are wanting to initiate therapy, both, you know, in a question and answer format and to refer them on to other people if you feel you're not your knowledge is not good enough so yeah I mean we really try and get people back to their local doctor though for ongoing care because sort of the specialist model of, of ongoing care is is not really viable long term but yeah no, it's, it's something that any GP can really um, help a lot of people with and and the the outcomes of these patients is really quite good so it can be very affirming to see what happens yeah Fantastic. And Sally? Yeah, no, I just get stuck into it. It's such a rewarding area of medicine to work in. And, you know, it's a community that really needs some people that um, are willing to put their hand up and offer that support and care and uh, be a friendly face because there's certainly they don't always get that. And so it's just such a rewarding area to work in and it's really not tricky. And, you know, just start seeing a patient. If you can find some support around then, that, you know, some mentoring is fabulous. But you, you kind of already know what to do. So have a look at the guidelines and work your way through. And, you know, I'm always, I was really upfront with my patients when I started, you know, literally you're my first patient, you're my second patient, you know, <laughs> and <laughs> had my guidelines next to me and kind of, you know, fuddled my way through and asked questions when I needed to and, yeah, and I just love it. So um, go for it. Right. Look, thank you both very, very much. You've been very, very generous with your time. I'd also like to let our listeners know that we're going to list the resources uh, underneath the podcast. So you can click on those links and and find the resources mentioned in this and the previous podcast. Uh, And please, if you've got any questions, queries, anything you want to discuss, don't hesitate to email us at thegoodgp at gmail.com. So Sally and Penny, thank you very much and we'll speak again soon. Thank you. See you then. 
The Good GP is produced and edited by the team at RACGPWA. If you've got any questions or would like to contact The Good GP, please feel free to email us at thegoodgp at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.